Welcome to the Missouri Valley Conference One Valley Voices for Change podcast. I'm Kelly Burke, and today we continue our year-long celebration of Title IX with three Hall of Famers who have been strong advocates for gender equity in women's collegiate athletics, even to this day. Difference makers. All three played a profound role in the growth of women's athletics at Illinois State and SIU. And I'll introduce all three of them individually. Charlotte West is one of the pioneers of Title IX, a women's basketball, Missouri Valley, and SIU Hall of Famer. She spent 26 years in Saluki Athletics, working as both a coach and later an administrator. And fun fact about Charlotte, she coached five sports at SIU, volleyball, softball, basketball, badminton, and swimming. Jill Hutchison is a trailblazer in her own right. She testified in front of Congress on behalf of Title IX and is the women's basketball Missouri Valley and Illinois State Hall of Fame coach. And fun fact about Jill, she was a grad assistant on the Illinois State softball team that finished second at the inaugural College World Series. And finally, Linda Herman spent two decades as an administrator at Illinois State, where she served as both the interim director of athletics and senior women's administrator. Linda also spent seven successful early years as the Redbird volleyball coach and is a Missouri Valley, Illinois State, and American Volleyball Coaches Association Hall of Famer. Ladies, uh, it's truly an honor to be in your presence, and thank you so much for joining me today. Looking forward to it, Kelly. Yeah, thanks for doing this. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm super looking forward to this. And so I will start. I have a question for all three of you. And uh, Charlotte, I'll let you lead things off. So the question is this, how did physical education teachers and classes play an early role in shaping both your interests and eventual career path into sports? When the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women was formed, I would say 95% of the first uh, people representing their institutions were in fact physical education teachers because we had an early love of sport. We wanted women to have the opportunity. And so I think that the background for all of AIW was a background with people in physical education. Linda? Um, Golly, Kelly, I don't know. This is taking me back to elementary school. Um, I guess when I think of physical education and like Charlotte talked about all of us um, probably going into the profession, uh, into administration, we came out of physical education, but I'm thinking about how I got started. I, I mean, I loved sports from the very beginning and I played little league baseball. And so um, I played little league baseball for my dad. And, and then I think my first experience with discrimination, which I didn't even know it was, is that we went to a city tournament and obviously the little league rules said no women, no girls can play little league baseball. And so, you know, from that very point in time, I, I thought to myself, God, there's just something not right about this. But my dad and I, I mean, you followed the rules and that's just the way it was. And you went on years and then I'm thinking to myself, well, I love sports. So, I mean, you just follow your dream and you follow your passion. And I think that probably is what all three of us has done as you're talking with us today. I, and in my heart, I love sports. And the only way for a girl in our age in the 1950s, 60s, 50, 50s and 60s. So I was born in 46. 
So there were no sports for girls. So the only role model that we had, if we love sports, was to become a physical education teacher. So maybe as we go through Title IX, we can talk about how careers have changed, including you as a broadcaster. That would have never, we would never even thought about being a broadcaster. The only thing we ever thought about was being a physical education teacher, if we love sports. Maybe tennis and golf had a little different avenue. But so we all, I think all of us went into physical education with that passion. And then really, as we go through some of this scenario, you know, obviously opportunities changed and Title IX created new opportunities for girls and participation in sports. But most all of us on this stage didn't have elementary youth sports. We didn't have college sports. So that was the avenue. So when we talk about um, Title IX, we were all physical education teachers and coaches at the same time. We just didn't do one thing. Yeah. We just weren't a coach. Yeah, which is just incredible. So that that evolved too. And then, I mean, Jill spent all her whole life and Charlotte probably coached more sports than I did, but I played all of them. So it's just a wonderful opportunity when we talk about Title IX, how this has changed our culture and the American society in roles that we can do. But back to Charlotte's point, when we all started, we were all, all about physical education. Then we went into leadership positions and there was an evolution to that. So I'll probably turn it over to Jill and back to Charlotte and we can talk maybe a little bit about that evolution in careers, but that's how we all started. Sure. Jill, anything you want to add? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. If you look historically about the history of women's sports period, all of it circled around physical education. Going back to the late 1890s when we first started playing basketball, but and then how it evolved and how the physical education teachers impacted it. First, they were supportive. Then they weren't supportive. We went through the sports day, play day era. And then it was the physical education teachers that brought it full circle. So we had competitive sports. Phoebe Scott on our campus was the president of DGWS. When we the CIAW. And, you know, it was that group of physical education people that really stuck their necks out and got us where we are. It's been an interesting progression. Yeah. Well, speaking of the progression, let's stick with that for a minute. Just, um, I mean, you mentioned somebody like me who's a broadcaster. And I think that, I think to my mentor, who I'm going to introduce her next week um, at a big golf award she's getting in New York. And she was one of the pioneers for women in sports broadcasting. And the stories she tells me um, are just unbelievable, unbelievable. And other women I've met, I, I mean, I can think one of the women I'm in an organization, the Association for Women in Sports Media, and one of the founding members of that organization was one of the first women to ever cover the Oakland A's. And she talked about um, there were so many players at the time. It, it was so foreign to have a women, woman, excuse me, covering sports that one of the A's pitchers actually sent her to the press box. She received a shoe box with a dead rat in it, um, when she was covering the team, because he was so against a woman covering that team at the time. Um, and it just to hear the stories of some of the things that, my mentors went through is crazy. So um, 
going back to the evolution of things, how have you seen women in sports um, beyond just physical education? How have you seen it evolve now 50 years later? And uh, Linda, let's start with you. Uh, well, I'm probably going to defer a little bit back to Charlotte because she really was kind of like right on the process of no, I'm, I but to because she, you were so instrumental in really the formation of the Title IX and the AIW and AIW president. But what strikes my mind is, and maybe we can all talk a little bit about this, but Title IX itself, when it was presented and, um, you know, Republican Senator By from Indiana, uh, as an author of Title IX, what struck me through all, all this history is that the impetus for him um, taking the initiative to be an author of Title IX was his wife applied to a school out east, I think it was Virginia. Yeah. His wife applied to the school, a law, a law school, and received a letter back that said women need not apply to our law school. Mm. So, you know, just for him then to take on that initiative to be an author of Title IX, think about then the, the passage of Title IX and all the things that Charlotte, Jill testified in Congress, what happened to get that law passed and then implemented is a whole nother story. But um, to get the law passed in itself, was the, it wasn't written for us to have coaching opportunities and broadcasting. It was written so that women could get into professional schools. So the impetus was really academics and athletics kind of became a sidebar and a benefactor of Title IX unto itself. And you know, this the story of Bernie Sanders and how that all came about. So for me, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Title, Title IX was written for academics, but look what it did. It changed our culture. And now, you know, because of the because of the law. And because of the, it speaks to discrimination and federally schools that um, receive federal funds and discrimination, then not, all of a sudden now we have women that are going into professional schools, law, engineering, um, becoming astronauts, physicians. And it just opened the doors to a whole new culture and our society changed because uh, education and of course sports was a benefactor. And I know we're gonna talk a, a lot more about that, but I'm, I'll, I'll defer now. Mm -hmm. Charlotte, what would you like to add? Well, I'm happy Linda talked about uh, Birch By and his wife, you know, who he met in high school and came home and told his family that he met the woman he was gonna marry. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he, he was so upset, you know, because she got the letter, women need not apply. How telling is that? And of course, he presented it in the Senate. And one thing about Birch Bias, he stayed with us to the end of his life. Yeah. Every time there was a hearing or a challenge to Title IX, he was there advising in a political sense and in a legislative sense. Yeah. So he his story is great. And then, of course, Patsy Mink, from Hawaii, uh, the uh, Title IX is now called the Patsy Mink uh, Equity and Education Act. Yeah. That's the official name now for, for Title IX. <clears throat> and her experience was that she applied to 12 different schools uh, because she wanted to be a doctor. And she was rejected. 
even with fabulous academic background and scores, you know, to warrant getting in. And finally, she got in the University of Chicago because she put P.T. Mink <laughs> the gender. So um, she, she was a great advocate. But I think one thing, all of us early when Title IX was enacted and, and even before Title IX was enacted, you had to, to uh, be a little aggressive about pushing forward. I can well remember one of the first speeches I was asked to give uh, was back the Midwest Association of Physical Education for College Women. And they had uh, asked me to speak about whether women should have scholarships or not. So of course I was excited to do that and my head of the department said, well, you know, if you do that, you'll disenfranchise yourself from a large number of members of MAPECW. And I said, yes, that's okay. I'll still do it because we had to, we had to step forth to see the, the change. And you ask about different positions for women in sport now, like yourself. And that that is really manifested to me when I, uh, have the weekly reports from the women leaders in sport because their members now are everything under the sun related to sport and it shows how it's expanded opportunities you know Linda mentioned that we love sport that was kind of one route to go and now there are multiple routes you know and they're getting into professional sports and uh, all kinds of leadership roles yeah Joe, what do you what do you remember about testifying in front of Congress? Actually, we were lobbying uh, congressmen more than testifying in front of Congress. I, I was involved in the um, the hearings and stuff with the Knight Commission, um, where we we supported Title IX extensively. But uh, it was an interesting experience. That I have one that just stuck in my brain. Um, I had to go visit the Illinois uh, senators and congressmen. One of the senators had been a wrestling coach. Yeah. <laughs> Illinois State had just dropped wrestling within months of when I went to visit. And um, I was totally undressed in front of this senator. I mean, there was no no thought to support Title IX or to support women or any of that. And so that, one of those thoughts prevailed extensively then. It wasn't easy getting male allies at the beginning, I didn't think, at least not necessarily on our campus, although our, our presidents have always been supportive, which was kind of interesting. I think the fact that women getting involved in college athletics required sharing a whole lot and men's sports weren't ready for that sharing process, sharing money because most of our income was from student fees back then. It wasn't gate receipts particularly, sharing facilities, um, support personnel. Those were the hard battles that I think made it difficult at times to, to continue pushing through. 
Charlotte talked about scholarships. Even on our campus, we had quite a bit of controversy about whether we should or should not endorse scholarships. And uh, our physical education staff, we had, we had 800 women physical education majors at the time and a staff of 80 women. And of that staff of 80 women, I would, I would guess Linda and I, and I think one other individual were supportive of scholarships from the get-go. It, it was a tough sell even to the women during a period there. I attended a, um, a big camp seminar thing in the summer. I can't even remember the name of it, Charlotte. I'm sure you would, where mm -hmm. people from all over the country collected and we talked about scholarships. And I remember vividly at the time, this was in the 60s, and I was just wet behind the ears. One other gal from, from California and myself were the only two that raised their hand in support. <clears throat> and there were probably wow. two or 300 women there. So it's just been a long process of <laughs> people accepting all the changes. Social change is a slow process, and we are absolutely experiencing that with Title IX. Yeah. Jill, oh, go ahead. I wanted to mention that there's been a lot of uh, articles written by Sports Illustrated, USA Today, locally, you know, uh, people are turn, tuning in. And we were so happy, oh, 20, 25 years ago, when we found that uh, more than half of the population started supporting Title IX. Mm -hmm. I was really disappointed this week that the latest poll was 63%. And I want to ask, why to the other 27? Why are they not supporting something that uh, has been so helpful to a large segment of the population, men and women? Mm -hmm. uh, why are they reluctant? Is it because of the, a lot of politics involved? And if it's uh, progressive legislation on behalf of women, there's a conservative group that is gonna resist whatever it is and they don't really know what it is. Mm -hmm. So we have, we have a lot of education to do, a lot of education. It's, it's been my whole philosophy in life is to try to uh, appreciate what you have but still want more. It's kind of the Michael Josephson philosophy of wanting more, but appreciating enough. Yeah. We've got so much more to do with Title IX and education and getting people in compliance than the population realizes. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question because I, I haven't seen that survey, so I don't know what that survey is or maybe what your reference is, but that's a staggering percent. The first thing that runs through my mind is Jill, Jill talked to our football team a couple of years ago and uh, asked them if, if, you know, if they knew anything about Title IX. She told me the story and I'm like, I'm laughing because um, they go, oh yeah, man, we know about Title IX. Yeah, we, we, get, we, we get educated on that every, at the beginning of every school year. And Jill goes, oh, that's great. So they started to talk about what it is and they're, they're, uh, understanding of Title IX is sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. Because on campuses today, sexual harassment has come under the guidance of Title IX and the guidelines on campus. So that's what they think Title IX is. And she might be able to expound on that, but I mean, I don't know where this is going, but 
you know, back to your question on why, what's the perception? And then you think about what um, I can think of a couple of people politically that have had their hand in Title IX and, um, and made, made sexual harassment uh, such a big issue on how women could even uh, make a complaint or how their complaints were going to be handled on campus. So a lot of Title IX in today's society with young people is not about athletics. It's about sexual harassment. Good point. Yeah. Really. No, that's, that's, that's a really good point. And it, it's interesting because when I interviewed Leanna Bordner for uh, the Patty Viverito piece earlier this spring, mm -hmm. Uh, she was adamant. One of the things she told me is that every, especially every female student athlete that comes in now, she sits down with them and tells them about title, not because a lot of the student athletes coming up today don't have any idea what it is. Like you said, right. it, there's this mis, especially among the male side of things, there's a misconception about the sexual harassment side of it. Um, so I thought that was, I thought that was great. First of all, that she does that, but, uh, Joe, one thing, you know, I was calling the women's softball series. This would have been probably early. I think it was early April. Um, and you and, and Linda were both being honored. They were doing a title nine celebration at it. And I learned, I, I did not know this about you, but you actually did a graduate research project that disproved the theory that women's hearts were not strong enough to play full court basketball. And this is back when uh, women's basketball was a six-player game and not a five-player game. So how did your research project help modernize women's basketball as, as we know it today? You know, I, I had always felt that the women should be playing the five-player five game. And so in my master's thesis, we hooked up electrodes to two athletes. And I got permission from... Dr. Scott and Lori Mabry, who was my boss, and asked them if we could play some. I, I was a graduate assistant under Lori, who was the basketball coach at the time. So I asked if we could play some AA teams to, to get some five player games to be able to test this. Well, the short of the long, the results of the study showed that at least with two two subjects, um, they could maintain a heart rate over 180 beats per minute, which is considered strenuous ex exercise. And this was before the AMA allowed women to compete in marathons because there was a, a lot of concern that the female heart couldn't stand that stress. So I honestly don't remember how I got invited to the um, rules committee meeting and um, I, I was able to share my research that this was really healthy. The AAU at the time was a sports governing body. They were pushing for the five-player game because they wanted kids ready to play internationally. The colleges were very reluctant. At the very first meeting I attended and shared that information, um, the committee as a whole, which represented all kinds of entities, the high schools, the colleges, DGWS, uh, the armed forces, I mean, every president. Um, they voted for the five-player game. We took that information back to DGWS and 
Fran Koenig was president at the time, they totally vetoed it so that they would not allow the five-player game. We had to go back and experiment for a year and then come back. And finally, we went from, really, it was the roving game to the five-player game. And um, I, I felt good that, that my research, I think, had some impact. And I mean, now, my goodness, they play a whole lot higher than 180 beats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was really funny because one of my subjects was Linda Fisher, who's still our softball coach. Her heart rate was the very highest during a halftime when the electrodes came off and she heard the buzzer go off to start the second half and she couldn't get up to the court quick enough. Her heart rate just soared, which shows you how emotions affect the heart rate as much as physical activity. Yeah. Wow. Linda, Illinois State, uh, they've been at the forefront of hosting the biggest women's sports championships even before Title IX officially passed. Why do you think Illinois State has been such a visionary in the growth of women's sports, even on a national level? Um, I'm not sure. To me, the answer would be leadership. Um, While I look back, Jill mentioned Phoebe Scott. Um, We had an individual, Dr. Lori Mabry, who was our only women's athletic director at the time. So people like Phoebe Scott, uh, Lori Mabry, Dr. Lori Mabry, um, even going back, Jill knows this history more than I do, Esther French for the physical education department. We had very progressive women prior to Jill and I attend, coming to Illinois State. And I think, you know, there's the thing that sayings like, um, you know, we've all stood on shoulders, other people's shoulders. We stood on their shoulders. Um, you know, they dug wells that we never dug mm-hmm. and we drank from their wells um and i think that's what we need to continue to do as we maybe get to a point where we can talk about the future but so we had strong leaders in physical education we had strong leaders that believed in opportunities um, that supported other women which is a big issue today women supporting women women empowering women those women empowered us i mean we didn't always agree and Jill could tell you, we had our own battles. We had our own battles in physical education. But when it all came down to it, they wanted the best for our students, the student athletes, the opportunities. And so we were willing to put ourselves out there, even though people might not agree and you could di- agree to disagree. But um, to create those opportunities, so I think it's all about leadership and strong women and creating an environment, even in today's world where young, our young people, our student athletes, um, and we were always supported. Like Jill said, we were fortunate in Illinois State to have presidents who supported us. Didn't always agree with us or the way that we were gonna do it, but they supported women. And we, somehow we created that environment. Somehow they, we got them to believe in us and what, what our purpose was. And so you asked me why, I, I just, it's people. It's getting the right people in the right places to say some of the right things and to be strong enough to push for things that aren't always popular. Um, I don't know. It's, I, I'd love to add to that. If I sure, go ahead, Joe. You know, 
Phoebe Scott, Lori Mabry were definitely leaders. We they hosted the first national swimming meet on our campus. They supported the first national basketball tournament that we hosted on our campus. Um, Lori initiated the first state meet. But when we were puppies and wet behind the ears, the leadership in the entire state of Illinois was spectacular. We had, you know, we had Lori and, and Phoebe. Southern had Charlotte and Joe Thorpe. Northern had Bell and Lou Jean Moyer. But the state itself was so proactive and was with great female leaders that just moved our programs forward really rapidly. And had it not been for all those women, we wouldn't have gone from AIW into the gateway or had any representation from women. We had strong leaders. And Charlotte, you were, you were in the heart of all that. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the strength in the state because it was phenomenal. It and was. Northern Illinois had tremendous leaders in, in Mo and Lou Jean. And you all started the, the swimming and the basketball. And Southern had the national national volleyball and national field hockey. Yep. I don't think any other state could could say that. And what we were very competitive with each other, always have been, but we helped each other grow so strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you all were just tremendous leaders all the time. All all three of you have obviously spent time as coaches and so what are a few things when you put your coaching hat back on that you were responsible for even after the passage of title nine that today's student athlete takes for granted let's start with you <laughs> oh, that's a hard question i mean it's it's been a long journey and it, it's still, we need to do so much more. When you look at the, the <clears throat> modern statistics that uh, division one football schools, the power of five, you know, they're spending twice as much for men as they are for women. I go back to, I can spit out statistics because I'm interested in, in, in the figures, but it, it's just uh, exemplifies how much more we need to do, how much more education is out there to, uh, to reach the, the goal of pure equity. And uh, we, we have to educate our, our young athletes, men and women, and, and give them the figures and the history so that they feel a challenge. And I will mention this, when I retired, which was a hundred years ago, <laughs> 98. So it's what, 24 years? Uh, I always had a goal of something to do to make us better. And what I found that was going to be my next mission if I had stayed active was to get the uh, Office of Civil Rights to do some audits. Because in our world of athletics, if we find out that the University of Illinois is being audited because their EADA report is suspect, everybody's going to polish up their report. And the, the focus lately has been on the manipulation of uh, 
data participation rate. I, I forget what the uh, USA Today calls it. Uh, not roster manipulation. That's what oh. they call it. Mm -hmm. All of that manipulation would be corrected if we could just have audits. <clears throat> and people would be sure that their data was correct and they'd be embarrassed if it weren't correct. That's the point. It's, uh, it's not being enforced. I was hopeful maybe we'll start seeing a little bit more enforcement. And Jill, when I heard we were gonna be on this call together, I, I reflected back, you probably remember the date, but uh, it was uh, Women's Basketball Championship in uh, Minneapolis. And you were very instrumental and Leanne was too. She ran out and made the posters and we had posters that said enforce Title IX. And when all the people were on the, being filmed, all of the coaches, everybody in the stand held up their signs saying enforce Title IX. Well, we need those signs again today. Yeah, we do. Oh, You're absolutely right. Yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah. lately and there I was with my sign and there Leanne was with her sign I couldn't find you but you were very instrumental in getting that that done to bring attention to the need to enforce the law well Oklahoma just dropped women's basketball wasn't that it that yes yes good memory and yes. so we were trying to support yeah. wow. the yeah. fact that they should not be dropping women's, yeah. Oklahoma women's, basketball. women's basketball you're absolutely wow. right. I'd forgotten that. That's great. Yeah. So we had pins, we had signs, and we had the platform, which allowed us television coverage to, to really promote that. Yeah. Right. You know, you say what we did that kids now don't understand. We, we've got pictures of kids standing on a chain link fence, dragging softball fields because we didn't have maintenance people to do it. We set up our own chairs. We swept the floor. We, we wore PE uniforms with pennies. When we really got a set of uniforms, we passed them from one sport to the other because we couldn't afford more than one set of uniforms. So in the fall, volleyball got it. And then, <laughs> got it, then softball got it. And field hockey was still wearing kilts. So they didn't need those uniforms. <laughs> Up around because we didn't have anything. Yeah. And um, you know, the funny thing about it, about it all, if we went back to the late 60s, early 70s, we were so, so excited to have an opportunity to compete at a high level. We didn't really get upset that we only had one set of uniforms. We just hoped they were clean when we got them. You know, we were just thrilled in the the players then, when we're having a reunion in two weeks to celebrate Title IX on our campus, these players are going to get together. They're going to tell the stories of that, that trip we took with Southern to, to Boston to the um, <laughs> NIT. On Southern's plane. <laughs> yeah, we had to use their plane because we couldn't afford it. And so we... I mean, that was a highlight, highlight of their careers. Kids that went to the first Women's College World Series, they have pictures, they talk about it. It's, those were just great opportunities. I mean, we didn't have a pot to, to use. And 
we went to that College World Series. We put the whole team in one motel room one night because we couldn't afford anything else. We drove four station wagons, two staff. Guess what? Two students drove station wagons. <laughs> we couldn't do that today if, if our lives depended on it. So right now, kids take for granted the opportunities to compete, three sets, four sets of uniforms, you know, the weight rooms, the, the study halls, all that stuff. None of that existed back then. And it's just taken so long to get through it. Are we there yet? No, we're not. Mm -hmm. Jill, you kind of, you touched on this a little with the story you shared about the former wrestling coach turned politician, but um, you know, for all three of you, what's an example of a time as a coach or as, as an administrator, when you experience discrimination or sexism because of your advocacy for women's athletics? And Linda, let's start with you. Yeah, well, the first one that hits my brain is that um, in Missouri Valley, <laughs> um, when I went into athletic administration, I went to the first um, Missouri Valley meeting in Tulsa. And um, it was run by the football coach, who was the football coach and the AD at the time in Tulsa. And I went to the meeting and um, there was no chair for me. <laughs> there, were, there were three or four chairs set up on the side of the room and there were named places in front on the table and there was not a place at the table for myself. And I, I honestly was, um, talk, Jill talked about being undressed. You almost, your, your heart almost stops. It's like, okay, wait a minute. What do I do in this situation? So I kind of observed the room and I thought to myself, I said, uh, I waited till there was a break. And I talked to a couple of the gentlemen and one of them was Marty Perlene at Wichita. And I spoke with him. I said, Marty, I said, I am, I'm not even really sure I know how to approach this, but this just isn't right. And so Marty at the break, he took a chair from the, from the wall and put it at the table. And I sat next to him in the meeting and whether or not I did the right thing or how I did it, I'm not sure, but talk about discrimination. I don't know that I've ever felt more discrimination in my life because it didn't happen on my own campus. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some things you might have to fight for, but when women talk about <laughs> in all professions now about a seat at the table, I'm thinking that was for sure real. I mean, that was <laughs> yeah. like, and that would have, well, and that would have been, obviously, Nine, 1992 or after because yeah, the, I have to, I'm not I'm horrible on dates because the because women's sports weren't it was the, it was the gateway conference yeah. before you know see the women's sports weren't even integrated to the Missouri Valley till after 1992 yes right but I was an interim AD mm -hmm. at Illinois State when they were so um yeah I I, I don't know the date you date would have to yeah it was when I was an interim director but wow but I know the talk about discrimination, I think that's the first thing that sticks to my brain. And then we could all talk about like how that Missouri, it, we went unwanted and organizationally, the women were unwanted really in the Valley at a certain period of time. The NCAA did the same thing. They presented so many different lawsuits trying to get rid of Title IX 
And so we went through a lot of those political avenues to create conferences, to create avenues for governance of women's sports. Because 1972, 90% of us, 90, 95% of the ADs were women and our coaches were 90%. So we had to go through all of this organizational uh, maneuvering to create leadership positions, which is still an issue for women in general in athletics. So it, when we talk about discrimination, I think leadership, seats at the table, those are still things that Charlotte's talking about that are unresolved. Mm -hmm. Somebody else? Charlotte, do you have uh, any anecdote or story that comes to mind? Well, I, I was so fortunate. I had worked hard to uh, obtain tenure here at the university. I, I did a lot of research and just since I've come back from Florida, I've gone through some papers to help a, a friend of mine is writing a book about sports in the 1970s. And he really pressed me to get dates and things that happened. I was going through my curriculum Vita and I had research articles I didn't remember writing. But <laughs> the point is I worked hard to get tenure and thank God I had tenure. Some of our administrators here were not supportive, and I was just flat out threatened. If you become so vocal, we'll have to see about getting a new director of women's athletics. Wow. That's hard to take. Yeah. You know? And I'm just thinking, dear God, thanks for tenure, because I had a colleague friend of mine not too far from here in a large institution that had no contract and no tenure and could be dismissed tomorrow. And, and I, a lot of us thought she was just very weak and ineffective. Well, she's scared to death to lose her job. So a lot of women went through that because uh, they, they didn't have tenure. And that to me was so helpful for my being quote, vocal and aggressive, which is not my nature. <laughs> I, you know, I don't like being aggressive and I, I like kind of being an introvert, which surprises a lot of people. <laughs> Jill, do you, I know you already shared the one story. Do you have any other anecdote or story that you want to add? There's a time we, we've been in three different facilities on our campus, actually. We started in McCormick Hall, which is like Davy's gym in, in Carbondale. Then, um, then we tried, we needed to expand. We just didn't have room for fans or anything. So um, we wanted to get into Horton Fieldhouse, which it was built in the 60, late six, mid 60s. And um, so when we had an event in Horton Fieldhouse, the field house guys who set everything up totally resented us and didn't want the women in there. Didn't want to have to deal with us. They didn't want to set up games or anything else. So I started making brownies and bringing brownies to work. And I would give brownies to the guys in the field house to try and develop relationships with them so that they would become more supportive and more helpful in our program. It took a couple years, especially for the guys that were kind of hardcore and been there a long time. But eventually, 
those guys became our very best supporters. To this day, they are so supportive of the women's programs and will bend over backwards to help us and stuff like that. But it's all about relationships. It's all about developing those relationships on, on our campuses, in our conferences, in our country, in our organizations, and some things like that. Um, Charlotte, I will tell you, I had tenure at ISU, and, they, and I had to teach. I was coaching two sports, softball and basketball, and I had five eight o'clock classes. <laughs> Till 2 a.m. and coming back and find, I kept asking them to change my schedule and da da da. They wouldn't do it. I resigned my tenure. I just thought, I, I decided, you know what? If you're not going to accommodate, I'm going to spend my career in athletics. And I went that way. And I was just really fortunate <laughs> that it worked out. <laughs> you were brave. Yeah. Jill, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that story because one of the things I, I did want to talk about at some point is just the importance of we, we talk about obviously the women supporting women is huge and that's vitally important and needs to happen at all times even today but it is important and this was reflected in, in Linda's story about the Wichita State AD who sort of acted as an ally for her at those meetings um, just how critical it is for men to be allies and advocate for women today and I can think um, even in broadcasting I can think of men uh you know I, I think of illinois i do a lot of games obviously for illinois state and i think of adam cop and uh, lucas raycraft who used to be there um and they were instrumental i had expressed to them a couple of years ago that besides calling the women's basketball games i also wanted to, to call the men's right. basketball games because i'm already in town and i you mm. know i like both i obviously love both sports and so it took some pushing but they were instrumental in getting me more opportunities to also call the men's basketball games. And then this season, once I got more opportunities, um, you know, Dan Moeller, who is the, the former Illinois state men's basketball coach, he's been, he was, has been absolutely wonderful through his whole career to me, even before I was calling their games, but just in giving me access and letting me come to shoot arounds and that sort of thing. And I can say the same thing about Barry Hinson, uh, who was that used mm -hmm. to be the coach at Southern is Barry was amazing to me about giving me access when I would call some of their men's basketball games. So um, that's just my, some of my uh, perspective and experiences with it, but, you know, for all three of you, just why, why is it so critical for men to be allies and uh, continue to advocate for women even today? And, and what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, we got to we got to bring everybody together. Yeah, it's, there's well, there's got to be a change in attitude towards gender equity. As much as there has to be a change in attitude about uh, racial equity, I mean, people have got to get on board, and it's got to be the blacks and the whites, the males and the females. That we've got to bring people together to make cultural change. And I think, I think building relationships and, and emphasizing those kinds of things may be our biggest uh, weapons to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'm thinking on Joe's line. I, I mean, you, Kelly, you asked like, why? 
I think one simple answer why we need male allies is they're the decision makers. Um, when it comes to leadership positions, uh, I don't know, division one is like eight to 11% of the women are in key, the major decision-making role. So when you're talking about, I mean, they, that carries a lot of weight and overall, I mean, I, I, Charlotte's a data person, but um, if you took every athletic administrative opportunity, that's from sports information to trainers, et cetera, 80% of those are filled by men. Yes. Overall, all three divisions, take all three divisions of athletics, add up all the available opportunities, 80% are filled by men. So there's still a, a reason why we have to, we have to um, build relationships. Honestly, when I was thinking one of the things about the way, the way to go about it, the, and I'm not a data person, as Charlotte is, I mean, I, I almost drop statistics, but, um, <laughs> but um, data is huge. And when you could, when I go, would go into a meeting, it, it, you've got to get over the emotional part of it. I took as much data into that meeting as I could possibly get my hand on from as many people in the athletic department as I could get. So I created a really good relationship with our business office. So I wanted every salary, everything, every expense, and I found a way to, to get information. And when you get information, information is powerful. Data can be powerful. It's just like talking about all the statistics, even in your field in media, how much media coverage do women get? When you start talking about the figures and the data and not, not just like trying to present an emotional case, it's presentable. And at least it helps you present a somewhat of a reasonable argument and a way to make change in a way then you can go into why is this not right? And then maybe an, eth an ethical approach. So it's just- It you know, is, yeah, go ahead. I, I learned a lesson uh, in running the institutes for women that want to be athletic directors through what was then NACWA. Uh, some of the young ladies in the class, because we wouldn't talk about Title IX and blah, 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 they said, can we not hear this from a male? Is there not somebody that is strong to help the women in, from a male perspective? And so I set upon finding somebody, and it's somebody close to home to Jill and Linda, yeah. who wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. And I brought him in and he, was a lecturer and the women loved him. But be assured that the men that step out to help you, they suffer abuse as well as we do. Right. And, and we had a, a very outstanding athletic director here who was so supportive, unfortunately couldn't stay long, <laughs> but he found in trying to find another job is that this wonderful reputation of being supportive of women and supporting Title IX didn't always play to his advantage. Yeah. And so I learned that I had to be careful and when you found somebody like that is to protect them as well. And they even asked for some protection. So uh, yeah. we just, we need to just keep working on good relationships and and, and moving our colleague, our male colleagues along 
as fast as we can without jeopardizing them. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's, I mean, Linda, it's, it's like you're reading my mind with all the, the stats, because that, that was actually a point I wanted to touch on is, is that disparity uh, in the world of sports administration and also coaching. I mean, you, you mentioned that 80% of sports administrators are male. And that I think of one of the student athletes I cover at Illinois state, Kendi Hilliard, a volleyball player. Yeah. She wants to, she, her goal is to be a college athletic director, which I think is fantastic. And she's taking the proper steps and interning and getting different great experiences uh, to, to make that happen. Um, but, but going to the coaching side for a second, um, the Missouri Valley conference is among the best in the country. And I, I'm th speaking to women's basketball specifically yeah. of having female head coaches, um, prior to the changes coming into this next season, we were at like 90% women coaches, which is tied for the best. It was tied for the best in the country. Yeah. Um, and then pre NCAA, the era of the NA, the AIAW, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics, 95% uh, of women's sports were governed by women. Right. Today, only 43% of women's coaches are female. So why have we seen such a drastic fall off, uh, specifically on the coaching side of things? And, and what do we need to do to, to continue to improve that? Well, the men have been successful somewhat with their, is it the Rooney rule? Is that what? Yeah, uh, in the NFL. Yeah. In, in football. Yeah. There's uh, an opening in that they require that at least one minority person be interviewed. Give them a chance and exposure. And, and I think that's good for uh, in minority hiring. Also, we need to have people have an opportunity they come in and can be very impressive and, and get a job and at least it gets people thinking in the right direction so uh, I, I think that should be certainly a, a minimum that they have at least a woman being interviewed and that we try to establish some rule like that which we had to do in the NCAA when we formed uh, like peer review committees or we formed the management council, we mandated, we mandated a certain percentage of women and a certain percentage of women. Yeah. Uh, Jill. I, I think there's a couple of reasons why we don't have more female coaches and I'm extremely disappointed and concerned about it. One is I think a lot of women had found salaries aren't, aren't, like they are for the guys. Mm -hmm. It's not as enticing for the hours that you put in. And I think so many people have found out that jobs in athletics, in any avenue of athletics, are 24-7 jobs. You don't have a 40-hour week. You don't have weekends free. Um, you know, you don't have time for vacations. If you're a basketball coach, heaven knows you've got two breaks, Memorial Day, Labor Day. That's it. <clears throat> Everything else with your families and so forth. So I think that factor and the factor that there are lucrative jobs for women in the corporate world have attracted women out of athletics to a degree. Mm -hmm. 
because it's not easy dealing with all the, the gender equity issues, they, they choose not to, which I think we've got to continue to mentor our, our young athletes to get them more involved in athletics. And the, the second thing is, as salaries increased somewhat, guys found out if they couldn't make it in men's sports, they could get a job in women's sports. And a lot of guys were willing to, to start kittens and work their way up. I mean, look at Gino. Gino Oriyama started as an assistant coach, and he's one of the highest paid women's basketball coaches in the country right now. So, you know, they've just, there, there, there are a lot of guys that want to do it, that are willing to do that, a lot of women that maybe aren't, and I think we're losing way too many female role models for our female athletes. Yeah, what? Um, yeah, and I, I would ditto everything Charlotte and just said. The thing, one thing I think about when I was writing contracts, guys want a lot of stipends in their contracts, and you know, I think the contractual issue is just pretty new on the horizon for women. Women having agents, women having uh, writing, their, getting a getting a contract, which, um, and and having them being educated on how to negotiate a contract. Mm-hmm because men negotiate them all the time and they get stipends for doing media thing and they get all these extra bonuses for winning a championship. I would really love to see stipends and more perks for women who could support them being a career woman because let's just say childcare. If, if you gave women in a contract a stipend for childcare or whatever, whatever else their role, societal role, because when it comes right down to it, you could say it should be equal, male, female, we get married and we're gonna have equal roles and we're gonna have equal, but it doesn't really play out that way. Women are still the one that has to stay home with the kid when the kid gets sick and they have to do whatever. There's exceptions, but I would love to see women being more supported because they need, because they need that support. So write it in a contract, give them support to do that role might be helpful. It's just other ways to think about it, but um, there's a lot of lucrative contracts in men's contracts for, and not, and then, then we talk about doing the same job. It's whatever. And, you know, I, I watched contracts for a long time when I first got started and I, I actually listened to a male say that they, they needed to get more money than the woman did because they had a family. I'm going, uh, wait a minute. Well, he, they've got four kids. So I'm supposed to pay that. I'm supposed to pay the man, the men's men's basketball coach so much money because he's got four kids. And then you've tried to pay the women's basketball coach over here for doing the same job. She has no kids. So there's, some things that we need to figure out, I think, contractually in our, in our structures administratively on how we're supporting, supporting people. Yeah. Piggybacking off of that, speaking about media coverage, women's sports make up just 5% of media coverage. Uh, And as we've seen this past year, when you put women's sports in a decent time, just a decent time slot, Uh, or on a network, a a bigger network, like an ABC, 
or a main ESPN or an ESPN2, the event gets record ratings. Uh, we just saw it a couple of weeks ago when uh, the, the Professional Women's Soccer League outdrew the NHL playoffs uh, and by a lot. Uh, had much superior ratings. Uh, I think about the other day, earlier this week, my parents were visiting and the Women's College World Series, the championship series was on. Yeah. And so we had it, you know, I said, I, I want to watch it. So we, all four of us were sitting in the, in the living room watching it. And uh, my dad was just, he was just saying how much he loved watching women's college softball. And my husband has watched, watched it here and there, but hasn't watched it a lot. And just listening to, he was like, this is, you know, he was just going off about how incredible and how much fun it was to watch. And I said, yeah, you just, you don't haven't watched it a lot, but it's, it's way more entertaining than a, a lot of, um, you know, other sports out there. So you just have some of, sometimes it's just a matter of getting exposed to it and giving it a chance, but what do you think it's going to take for this to become the norm where we see women's sports in a a prime time slot or on a big network and so to where it's no longer the exception. And Charlotte, let's start with you. Oh, I wish you wouldn't have said that. I don't know what it's going to take. I, uh, you know, a lot of it's still education. Uh, I mean, you throw out that 5% figure. Uh, the general public has no idea that it is as bad as it is. I, I was uh, encouraged recently, uh, I lost a very dear friend, Christine Grant, <clears throat> passed away in September, and they had a memorial for her a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some of the coaches on her staff that she taught, and they saw her demonstrate her passion for time of mind, are going to start a time of mind educational center there. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I just am so excited about that because I know uh, Amy Wilson, who's one of her protégés, is now the NCAA person in charge of all kind of gender equity and inclusion issues. And she said, I thought naming an elementary school for Christine Grant was the ultimate, but this Title IX Educational Center exceeds that even. That is awesome. They're, they're going to have that. And uh, I've mentioned earlier today when we were visiting is that education is such a large role. And I know when I turned 80, I said, no more talking about Title IX, no more. <laughs> I'm going out to pasture, but I have such a passion for it. It's hard to say, it's hard to say no, because we need to keep educating people. And all of us need to, when we have an opportunity, whether it's local AAUW or the Delta Kappa Gamma on your campus or whatever, we need to let people know. And when they find out that 5% of the coverage is for women, there are a lot of people there that are supportive of women's equity. Certainly AAUW has been for years. We need to get that out and encourage local papers, write to the local newspaper, write to the local TV station. We still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, Jill, let's go to you. And, and I should say too, um, Bloomington Normal, the, the Panagraph in particular, they do do like Randy Reinhardt, I can think of in particular, he does do a fantastic job of covering women's sport. You know, the women's basketball team does get coverage in that paper as does women's volleyball and softball, which 
you can't say, I think to my parents live in Phoenix and my mom that reads the paper every day, multiple papers and talks about how there's never any coverage of the women's teams out there, the women's college teams, or frankly, even any women's sports in Phoenix. So, um, but Jill, I digress to you. Uh, you hit my hot button. When we talk about things that are going to make a difference, I think the visibility of women's sports is huge, whether it's in television right now is the biggest uh, visual tool. And the fact that we're at 5% is an improvement in the last three years, which is really pathetic. Yeah. So, and, you know, that's on major networks. And if you took that 5%, a good portion of it are huge events like Olympics and, you know, the skating, the, the soccer, uh, the world championships, uh, the tennis, um, U.S. Open. That's, that's absorbing a whole lot of that 5%, which is telling us that we're not doing it. But you made the right point. Build it and they will come. We put those, there were two basketball games this year that drew as big a crowd on television as um, the NBA or, um, oh, what was it? It must have been the MLB, I guess. Um, but if we put it out there, they'll do it. So where's the problem? It's with administrators within the television community, you know. And Kelly, I spent 15 years in broadcasting, and so I appreciate what you're doing. It's not easy to break in to this profession. And there's only about, what, 7 or 8% of broadcasters that are female. We don't have enough role models in those jobs. We don't get them on the air enough. And we've got to get the people on top in major networks and ESPN these programs on the air. That brings crowds, that brings money to programs which support the programs it, and it, it grows the sports. Women now are skilled enough, they're well coached enough that they put a great product on the stage. And the more we put them on television and emphasize the things they can do, the more support we're going to get for, for those sports. And who is paying the bills for college athletics right now? Television. Mm -hmm. It's a huge entity in resources. So if, if we promoted women's sports on, on television at the same level as men, would we have bigger crowds? Would we have more money in the programs? Would we have greater salaries? I think it is a huge issue and how to promote women's sports and gender equity. Linda, anything you want to add to that? Oh, you know, well, the only thing I'm thinking about is, is a little bit what Jill said in terms of like, build it, you will come. We happen to have gymnastics on our campus and we're one of the few non-major schools that has gymnastics. We were talking to our gymnastics coaches not too long ago. And an example in um, what Jill's talking about, build it and you will come is convincing convincing the TV world that if you if you do that, an example is the SEC gymnastics, it happens they have an ESPN women producer, but they pr started producing gymnastics on television 
and they've, they've kind of branded it as Friday Night's Lights Out. Now those schools, Auburn, um, those schools are, they're averaging 15 and 20,000 for a gymnastics meet. Yeah. And people are seeing it on TV and all of a sudden, I mean, it's maybe a little bit of a fallout of the Olympics, but I was just amazed. I thought that's how that happened. It happened because they started producing it and people could see what a great event it is. Now you can hardly get a ticket to a gymnastics meet. So um, it's, it's a chick like Jill has talked about before. It's a chicken and egg. But if, I think if when you can convince people like in your position to actually produce it, then it leads to, it leads to one, one thing leads to the other. It leads to merchandising, it leads to schools having salary, it leads to, and, you know, Title IX has destroyed the myth that women aren't interested in sport. That used to be the argument. Oh, they're not interested in it. That's what they use to, to counter on media right now. You go and you say, hey, you know, the Missouri Valley, we really needed to produce blah, blah, blah. And half the time, 10 years ago, you would get, oh, women aren't interested. Nobody wants to watch women's sports. That's the argument that people use. Title IX destroyed the myth that women aren't interested in sports. Now you've got the media. We've got to destroy the myth. It's a myth. There's no bat, there's nothing that, there's no statistics that say women aren't interested in watching sports. That men aren't just like your family, that they're not interested in watching softball. They watched it, they love it. Yeah. You gotta yeah. see it. You gotta yeah. see it. I mean, so, my, my dad was adamant. He was, he was yeah. like, I love, I love watching this, you know? <laughs> so well, that's what's going to happen, but we got to destroy the myth. Yeah. Uh, how does the, the introduction of the NIL name, image, and likeness into the college sports landscape hurt or help title nine? Charlotte, let's uh, start with you. I pass. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to be negative. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's, some, there's some movement in sport right now that has me very concerned and that's one of them not that you know we've we've shuffled so much money to our athletes room board tuition fees tutoring medical expenses you know private tutoring families to the games and everything they're not hurting, they're getting a wonderful education. And the more we pay a few, we're gonna see sports, sports being dropped, sports being dropped. And so I worry about it. I kind of like uh, Saban's uh, response lately about, you know, if we have it, we need to have better regulations concerning who gets it, how much, and the fairness of it. Because it's just changing uh, the game of sport. I read in this morning's news that Missouri State has lost at least seven of their male basketball players in the transfer portal and are bringing in at least seven from the transfer portal. Mm -hmm. uh, is that healthy? I'm not picking out, you know, one school because it's happening all over. But when your team is, you know, 10, 12 players and you're half of them go out on the portal and half of them come in. There's no continuity. It's just, it's not how educational sports should be. So I'm, I'm really disturbed uh, 
apart from any title line with some of the direction that the uh, NCAA is going with their regulations. And some of you know, not by choice, but there still has to be a way of regulating what, uh, <clears throat> what the politicians want. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned about it and I don't relate it to you know, Title IX myself. Linda. I don't know, it's a runaway train. I think uh, you're gonna find probably all three of us being very concerned about this issue. <clears throat> I, I read something earlier about, I mean, right now the NIL, I think 90% of it is are going to football players, <clears throat> football and men's basketball. <clears throat> if you take, if you took that out, then the greater majority of NILs right now are going to women <clears throat> because they're not going to the other, they're not going to the other men's sports. They're going over to softball players and women's basketball players. So they're, they're benefiting a little bit, but you take that whole segment out of there until there's regulations. Um, I, I don't know. Personally, I see it as a runaway trade. I don't see how you regulate it. <clears throat> and what really happened at the very at the, the impetus of all of it is that we've got coaches, <clears throat> excuse me, that are making multi-million dollar salaries. That's right. So when, when you've got a football coach that's making whatever, 26 million or 30 million, I don't know, right now. And, and so lawyers got a hold of the whole issue. Lawyers in, in the Northwestern football players, they got a hold of the whole issue and they're going, hey, this isn't right. You guys are getting nothing. But we're paying your coaches $10 million and you're the one that's making them all the money. It's you guys that are. And so when the lawyers got a hold of it, now it's become a litigious, litigious issue. It's not, it, is it an educational issue? Hopefully somebody can argue that, but it's become a legal issue. And so I, the, I, yeah, if you've got people way out there that are currently in the profession that are trying to deal with this issue, and I don't think they have an answer yet. Yeah. So, the car dealer that gives an ass, football player 20,000, 50,000, whatever, he would be giving it or she would be giving it to the athletic department. Right. So, there's so, yeah. A lot of, of, yeah, I just read an article the other day, and the headline was Nike signs two so Nike signs two players to Stanford. It wasn't Stanford that signed two players. The headline was Nike signed two players to Stanford soccer team. Hmm. Interesting. That is totally, totally. We're in a different ballgame. Well, I I just saw the other day that um, the Ohio State quarterback just. Uh, got a deal to have a Bentley this year yeah. uh, to drive a Bentley, which I mean, good for him. But at the same time, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what, it, where do you go from there when you got, when you got, I mean, hopefully he goes to the NFL, but where do you go after that? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. what, so it's a different landscape. Yes. Jill, anything you want to add? No, in my mind, Charlotte nailed it. We we've gone so far away from educational sport. You know, D3 is probably the only, only level that is purely educational sport anymore. And it's a different world. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they resolve all of this. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna have to, to take some control somewhere, somehow. Yeah. 
Uh, a couple more questions for all of you, because I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Um, this one for all three of you. In, in, in 50 years, this is a twofold question. In 50 years, where yeah. have we seen the most progress from Title IX? Where is more progress needed? And Linda, let's start with you. Um, well, the most visible is the seismic growth and participation. So you go back to 1972 and you look at the percentages of kids that were playing, girls that are playing high school sports and it's less than 10%. And now you look at today's statistics and 45% of high school girls are playing sports. So there's a seismic growth in, in elementary schools, high schools that are all defensible by all the surveys and participation numbers professional sports. There were no professionals, really, maybe one is tennis, you could go back. And then now you've got professional sports for women. So it's participation. And that's what we thought it was all about and um, the entry level. And so then we go and we talk about issues like media coverage, equitable pay, um, trying to break barriers where women aren't getting fired because they do speak out discrimination in the workforce. Um, those types of issues are, are all, um, they're just on our forefront and I think they're yet to be conquered. So I guess my simple answer is yes, that growth and opportunities for girls to participate in sport, amen. And then now you've got the other issues of, of gender equity and pay equity. And um, that would be where I would, that's where my brain would go. Yeah, Charlotte. Uh, I think Linda's correct is the increase in the number of women, women participating has, has been phenomenal. It really has. In high school, a thousand percent, a thousand percent increase, over three million young women playing in sport. But do you know that the women today in high school are still not where the men were in 1972. In fact, they're lagging that by about a quarter of a million. So it goes back to my original comments about uh, appreciating enough. Uh, I think one of the areas where there's been the greatest success was thanks to Norma Cantu as uh, she had the scholarship requirement in Title IX saying that they must be within 1% of the participants. So when we look at data, I don't care division two or the powerhouse football conferences, that's one place where they shine. If they're 36% participation, which is poor, there is 36% of the money going to scholarships. And that's been very helpful to collegiate women in their pursuit of an education because I think of so many young women that came to our campus from some of the poverty areas in St. Louis and East St. Louis. They would never have been to college if it weren't for a scholarship. And they're leading very successful and, and happy lives now because of Title IX and the scholarships. So the, the plus side is increased participation and the opportunity scholarship wise. And Linda pointed out all the things that we still need to work on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Jill. You know, I would agree with all that too. Leadership is still, I think, a big issue um, and having more women in leadership positions in college athletics would be huge. I've already mentioned I'm, I'm way all over the media coverage. I think that's huge. Um, salaries, good Lord, there's so many issues around salaries. Um, that, that's across the board. I think not only the participation in athletics has improved, but women getting into professional schools and teaching in professional schools and leadership in CEOs. I mean, Dick Sporting Goods is a female CEO. Some of those kinds of things have improved just because of opportunities in Title IX. But uh, yeah, we still need leadership. Mm -hmm. we, need, we need a whole bunch more stuff, yeah. How do you inspire today's student athletes of their role in continuing the fight for Title IX, Charlotte? I think it's real important that the uh, athletic departments have somebody speak to the male and the female athletes to give them the background and a little bit about the knowledge of Title IX, what, what the myths were, because they still are hanging out there like men are losing opportunities. And oh, I love to address that. <laughs> Different areas. So I, th I think a lot of it is, is leadership, as Jill said. If the athletic administrators today will be sure to incorporate uh, Title IX education for all of the athletes, and that would increase their participation of what, what they're receiving. And, encourage them to question things that are not equitable. So I, I think a lot of it is we've kind of, a lot of people have kind of just put it, Title IX aside. And that's one thing great about this anniversary is it's bringing it back to life and uh, getting people talking about it and, and looking at some of the improvements and where we still need to do more work. Jill. Yeah, education's huge. Um, you know, on our campus, we are having a, a Title IX celebration. We've got um, hopefully around 300 people coming back for that. And as part of that, we're doing a leadership seminar. Um, and we're incorporating as many of our current student athletes as former. Um, and we're also going to have a monument on campus in, in between Horton Field House and Redbird Arena that honors um, Title IX, the people who got us there. Um, and hopefully it inspires people that walk by and reminds them that, hey, this is still out there and you're part of it and you need to carry the torch for the next generation. Um, so we're excited about our celebration and our programming and very excited about our landmark. Linda. Well, the landmark's huge for us because somebody's gonna to have to come along and knock it down to get rid of it. <laughs> so there's gonna be a lot of kids that are gonna walk by there. And part of the logo has like one, uh, old, one girl passing the baton to the other girl. So a lot of our philosophy has been passing the baton and we, the other instrumental part for us is our current coaches who are, I really think we need role models. And so they've been good at embracing us, embracing the past, 
And they take time almost every year to talk to their team and talk to them, not maybe, maybe may mention Title IX, but talk about embracing the past. You didn't always have this, what's been before you? And then they talk about tradition because that is our tradition. So it's easy for them to talk about it because then they can, they can bridge that and then go on to their own story and how their kids are gonna continue that tradition, winning tradition. And um, it's just building on the past. And then, you know, I, I, I go back to even what happened with women's basketball and Sedona Prince. I, I think our future yeah. is our student athletes. Our student athletes have to say, this isn't right. And you always have to say to your it's student athlete, it's okay to ask why. It's okay, that's how things get done. Ask the question, why, why not? Why is that not right? So when, when our coaches do that and they present that kind of a role model and it's okay for the kids to ask, you create an environment in your own athletic department, it's okay not to, it's not like you're gonna be belligerent, but how can we get this right? So it's, Jill likes to talk about this and she talks about it all the time. It's, it's the spirit of Title IX. It's the spirit of what's right, what's ethical. I mean, we've got a law, we've got rules and, and now obviously we have to enforce it. But the spirit of it should never be different. It should never be. It should always be about what's right, how to make it better. And so a lot of it falls on our, own, our coaches' shoulders and talking about the past and inspiring the future. And, and a lot of our kids have just really been great. It's go, I don't know, it's like they love it. They, and they love to hear the old stories, which we're going like, really? Well, <laughs> they do. And it's like, okay, would you keep trying to tell it? Yeah. Uh, as we wrap up, is there anything any of you would like to add to this conversation that I haven't asked you? Hmm. You've been very thorough, Kelly. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> well, you're a great role model for everything yeah. we've been talking about. So well, thank you. I, I mean, I, I have, to, I have great, I have three great examples in, in you ladies. So I just I want to take the time to thank you for all the, the work you've done past and present. I mean, you're still fighting the, the good fight and uh, a lot of the opportunities that I have today and that I've, that I've had as a student athlete uh, back when I was in college are because of the three of you and uh, the pioneers that, that you were and that you still are. And so just thank you a million times over for everything you do and the way you inspire women and men. Uh, and, you know, I just uh, can't say enough about all three of you and I appreciate this conversation so much and enjoyed learning about everything and, and your takes on everything. So thank you for spending the time with me today. Thank you. Good to be with all of you too. Thank you, you. too, Charlotte.